Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. We're continuing on in our mini-series of this book. It's entitled, As the World Turns. So we're trying to keep step with what we've done for the course of the past, uh, well, last week and this, this week and next week. Each sermon is going to be named after a popular soap opera that is applicable to what we're starting to talk to. And this week is called One Life to Live. One Life to Live. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to say a word, and we're going to do a little bit of call and response. So when I say this word, I just want you to speak back to me about the first thought or the first word that comes in your head when you hear this word. Injustice. All right, so call and response is this. I start off and I speak to you, and then when that thought comes into your head, um, you actually say it out loud. So I call and you respond. So let's try this again. We'll sort of... I'm going to say a word, and when I say this word, I want you to speak the first... Um, word that comes into your mind not yet injustice lots of things came up police Trayvon oh 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 I'm sorry this is bad we're actually done with the call and response portion thank you for thank you for playing lots of stuff came up Police, brutality, Trayvon. Okay, let's try this one more time. This is good. This is good because now I know that y'all are with me. I've got about 40 minutes of stuff here, um, and it's not going to work if we keep on this path. In 2012, a young man by the name of Trayvon Martin um, was murdered. Now, I don't assume that we've all found ourselves in this conversation about justice, that we've all come into it the same way. But one thing that I do know is that this event in 2012 was unique because it took a conversation that seemed like it was quarantined in barbershops and hip-hop culture and BET and black Twitter. It seemed like it took a conversation that was quarantined, and now it be became mainstream. And so we all start to talk about this concept of injustice, and it comes and it's out at the forefront. But like many conversations, this one was marked with conflict. And that you had one side of the group, even in churches and among Christians, you had one side of the room that denied that injustice existed on, on the mass scale that it did. They were appalled that somebody would make a claim that a country this great would, would be involved in things that took place. Or you had people that dismissed it, wrote it off as conspiracy theories, 
or isolated events that take place where we really need to get all the facts before we decide what we're going to call this. Or you had people that deflected it all together. And you start to talk about injustice. And it's referred to as something that takes place in communist Cuba. Oppressive China. And the list goes on and on and on. But not here. Or you had folks that found themselves who finally felt like the things that they've talked about for years were being brought up to the forefront and people were forced to acknowledge and address it. And what took place was as they became more vocal about the things that were wrong, they were met with all of the objections that we talked through and it led to discouraged hearts. It led to frustrations because now when it seems like things are clear beyond a shadow of a doubt, people still want to deny it. Nobody wants to engage with it. And in the church and amongst Christians, it seemed like while the rest of the world was vocal and moving in one direction, Christians were quiet or acted as if the Bible didn't speak about all of these things. So what I want to do with our time continuing in our series is to just ask and answer this one question. How should Christians respond to the reality of a broken justice system? We talked about life, right? Last week, life can't be manipulated. It can only be Managed. We live in a world where there are certain things beyond our control. And so last week we talked through all of these things and you just kind of lumped in that life is beyond our control. This week as we go to Ecclesiastes, he's going to take a, a break and he's going to say this is so important that it can't just be lumped in with the rest. This is so vital that it's like. Like Michael Jackson, right? He can't just be content to be in a group with the rest of the five. It's so important that it has to stand on its own. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. Three things are going to take place here. He's going to make a reflection on justice. He's going to come to a realization about who God is. And then lastly, he's going to come to a resolution about how he should live here in this world. The very first thing is the reflection that he makes is this. Earthly justice is distorted. Earthly justice is distorted. Or you could put here, the justice system is broken. And here what takes place here. This is an ancient text written by somebody that lived 3,000 years ago. And listen to the observation that he makes as he reflects on justice in the world that he lives in. Verse 16 starts off and it says this. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. 
So what he does is he starts off, this is a guy that served as a king. This is a guy that's been in charge. This is a guy that has people that responded to him. This is a guy that was responsible for ensuring that justice took place. And his first observation here is, this is what I've seen. Wickedness finds its way everywhere. The presence of justice doesn't mean the absence of wickedness. Justice in his day and age, he viewed it as broken. He seems shocked and surprised. Look there in verse 16 what he says this. I saw that under the sun, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And so he's going to use that word even. He's shocked that in the one place that people are supposed to go for protection and security, even that's not enough to protect them. Wickedness is present in at least two ways. In the way justice is dished out in any culture, in the way that justice is defined. So let's take our culture, for instance, in the way that justice is dished out. We live in a world that has a justice system that is, in fact, biased. All the way from uh, uh, with things like stop and frisk, mandatory minimums. Juveniles of color or poor that are tried as adults in disproportionate ways that are sent to prison. Mentally ill folks that find themselves in the same category that are unfairly sent to jails. Disparity in drug sentences. 1986. This anti-drug law came out. And do you know what it did? It gave a mandatory minimum to both crack and cocaine. On a molecular level, both of those are the exact same drugs. Crack is more accessible to poor folks, and cocaine is the rich man's drug. Here's the law that was passed in 1986 anti-drug reform. If somebody was caught with possession of 50 grams of crack, which weighs as much as 20 pennies, mandatory minimum, 10 years in jail. Do you know what it would take for somebody to get that same sentence for cocaine? 5,000 grams the equivalent of 2,000 pennies. So what took place was people with this were prosecuted at a rate of 100 to 1 for the exact same thing. Listen, this is not theoretical. These are actual lives that are ruined based on a biased justice system that is in fact broken but in 2010 do you know what took place they had a reform to this law and so now people with crack are no longer being 
prosecuted at a 100 to 1 rate, but an 18 to 1 rate. Even in the reform, things are not clear, things are not fair. Justice is broken in the way that it's dished out. Not just in the way that it's dished out, but in the way that it's defined. And it's becoming increasingly more clear to people that are Christians in the world that we live in, where now abstaining from support or willfully doing business because of a religious conviction is and can be defined as hate speech or discriminatory. So you have people that are abstaining from certain things because of religious convictions that are actually being sued all in the name of justice. Earthly justice is distorted. The presence of justice doesn't mean the absence of wickedness. It finds its way and it seeps in. It's like if you're, if it's like if you wear shoes and go to the beach and you tie the shoes up as tight as you can and you hope not to get any sand in your shoes, what are you going to find as soon as you, you take those shoes off? Sand. Good. Call and response. Y'all get it. Sand. Tie them up as tight as you want. Put as many checks and balances as you want. Bring in as much reform as you want. Put in as much legislation as you want. And do you know what you're going to find? The same thing that he found here 3,000 years ago. That earthly justice is distorted. What does that do to you? How does that make you feel on the inside? But this one life that we all have to live and to serve, what does that do? It fills us with feelings of anxiety. Because you and I are all aware that the world that we live in, in the world that we live in, there is evil. But now what we have to be concerned about is in the world that we live in, it's not just that there's bad things. But the good things that are supposed to protect us from the bad things don't work like they should. It's like living in a bad neighborhood and getting a locksmith to put 13 deadbolts on the back of your house only to find out that at the end of the day he kept a key and he's untrustworthy. Everything that you thought would protect you could actually expose you to a brand new danger. There's no safe zones. This is not new. Isaiah 5 23 says this. This was written in the 8th century BC. 2700 years ago. He says this about the system in his day that there are those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and and deprive the innocent of his right. Earthly justice is distorted. And he starts off this time and he reflects on it. So the only application that I have for us in light of all of this is that we as Christians, those that live here in the real world, we should be those that reflect on it as well and not turn a a blind eye to it. 
that as we talk about these things, it's not an attempt to use the pulpit to create a church full of conspiracy theorists. It's an attempt to unpack what's here in this world or, or what's here in God's word to equip a church full of folks to know and expect the world that they are getting ready to go into. It's meant to make us insightful. That look, we live in a world where people do not get what they deserve. And I don't mean that just yet in the spiritual sense. We all deserve hell. So as I wake up, I don't get what I deserve. That is true. I'm trying to talk about this in terms of the way that you think about getting what you deserve on your job, at your schools, in relationships. People do not get what they deserve. So here's what we don't do. We don't close our eyes to it and act like it's not there. And here's what makes that incredibly hard at times, especially for a church like this in a place like this, is that even in this room, there are few of us that have come from a place like this. There's few of us that grew up in a place like this, the southwest side of Atlanta. Many of us have grown up with privileges in the world that we live in. And so it becomes increasingly more difficult to see just how broken a system is if you've grown up favored by that very system. So if you're white or a male, or even black and middle to upper class, there are certain things that you just haven't had to deal with. And so do you know what that means for you in the world that we live in? That you may have to work harder and intentionally take some time to learn and to read and to see just how broken this world is. One one guy in our church, and not to shout him out, that I've been incredibly surprised and challenged by is Bob Self. Bob Self is a 60-something. Bob, how old are you? All right. 64-year-old white man who moved into the southwest side of Atlanta. In the course of these past few few months or years is all of this stuff is come on and Bob would never want me to do this from upstage so look he's already turning red Bob it's all right yeah a larger point so Bob and I sit and talk this past week and Bob just talks about how he's trying to get it and he's spending his days devouring books so that he can see this and find himself being able to empathize with people that find them, themselves here. Bob, I think, is a prime example and illustration of a call that's not just on all of us, but especially true for those of us that are Christians and find ourselves in this same place in a world where justice is broken and people are being oppressed. If you're favored, it's going to be harder for you to see these things. So we're going to have to work harder. Here's what we don't do. We don't meet issues of injustice with deflection. We don't meet it with saying, 
The U.S. is the greatest country in the world. Regardless of if you feel like that's the case or not, it negates this truth that earthly justice is distorted justice. That our aim is not to deflect and talk about what goes on out there to the exclusion of what goes on here. Our aim is to engage with what goes on here. To be reminded that the country that we live in began on a faulty foundation. So no amount of internal renovations to the walls and the windows keeps the house itself from being lopsided. So we don't move past that quickly. We remind ourselves as well that there is a difference between ignorance and ignoring. Ignorance is, I just didn't know that it was there. Ignoring was, I heard that it was there, but I didn't believe it, so I'm just going to act like it's not there. It's at the forefront. We cannot ignore. God has left us here as Christians for a reason. And we have to be reminded that earthly justice, however good, pristine, it may look or feel, is distorted justice. Now what that can do, like most of the stuff that we've seen in Ecclesiastes, is it could be depressing. You start to go down this path and you start to read and research and learn. And one thing that you find is that it's not long before you get overwhelmed with the gravity of all of the problems that exist in our world. And what this does for people that believe that God is actually in control is sooner or later we have to trace that line back to if God is really in control. And he really can't change, and he really can change things. Why hasn't he? Right? You know, it's one thing for us, but it's one thing to sit back and to remember that there were generations of people that grew up, that were born into, that lived lives as slaves. Believed in a God that could set people free and died as slaves. So if we're not careful, what all this could be is it could serve as this indictment on God. And we ask him and we can get frustrated and say, if God is really out there, why did he let things get this bad? Or why hasn't he done something? And the closer that you are in proximity to the problem, the more real that question be, becomes for you. So in the same way that he had this, this, this reflection that earthly justice is distorted justice, he does have a realization. And the realization that he has is this. God's perfect justice is often delayed justice. God's perfect justice is delayed. Uh, verse 17 says this. He, he starts on and says this. I said in my heart. We'll just start with this. Such a 
wonderful phrase. I heard a pastor once say this, 99% of our problems in our lives come as a result of we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. When he's overloaded with this burden of what goes on, he doesn't just sit there, but what he does is he reminds himself of this truth. He reminds himself of the reality of God. It's the one thing that we're going to see throughout this book, and it's the one thing that we're constantly going to see in the Bible. The people that find sanity in this world are people that talk about God's works when they experience life's woes. They're people that constantly look towards God. And this is somebody that does just that. And he says this. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter under heaven. Comfort comes from realizing that earthly justice is distorted. Now. But there is One day, God's perfect justice, God setting things right, it's actually going to come. He has a confidence that it is certain and it will be complete. That word will be. Though it's not here now, his confidence and the thing that brings him any comfort is the fact that one day God will come and set things right. Listen, I want you to hear this. This belief in divine retribution that God is in control and one day he'll set things right. This is what lay at the heart of the civil rights movement and any nonviolent protest. Any nonviolent protest has this at the heart. Without this There's nothing else to hold on to. Without the hope or belief that one day God will set things right, if you take that out, then what's left? Things are bad and I have to take care of this by any means necessary. It's this truth and people want to like throw this out and act like it's not important. This lies at the heart. This is not passivism. This is not all that there is, but this is the first step. And the very first step is reminding ourselves and those that are burdened, anxious, and disheartened by what goes on in the world that, no, no, listen, listen, God really is in control. God really will set things right one day. One of the best ways for us to remind ourselves of things like this is to actually pray for God to do these things. And it's no coincidence that in days like this, Christians are so discouraged with all of what goes on in the the world because you can fill and pack out a room for a concert. You can fill and pack out a room for church service. But do you know what will empty a room quick? Tell them that you're going to spend the whole time praying. And what you'll find is that at the end of the day, people are like, I really want to do some work. We can't just pray. I agree that we can't just pray. But we can't not start there 
either, any movement, any action that doesn't start, there will quickly fizzle out. We have to be reminded that God is in control. And there's a comfort that comes from the certainty that God will set things right. And not just the certainty, but there's a comfort that comes from the fact that God's judgment will be complete. He says right here, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Listen, God is not caught up in this election cycle the same way that we are. God does not go into a a voting booth and see names on a list and says, "Ah, I don't like both of them, but I guess I just have, have to choose one. Do you realize the predicament that we're in that God's not in? Do you realize that if the two presidential candidates that are leading right now, both of them, if they both were convicted of the things that they were accused of, they would both be in jail and unable to vote. We're in a predicament where this seems like our choice, but the beauty is that God is never in that. His judgment's going to be complete when, when, when it says that God will judge the righteous and, and the wick, wick, wicked. It means that God's going to be the one to determine who's who. No shell corporations, no media, no uh, stories, no lawyers, no bribes, no satire, no false promises will hide the distortions of justice that we see in our world. God's justice is certain and it will be complete. But it's coming, which means that it is delayed. It's not here just yet. Unless we think that that is an indictment, that God's inactivity is somehow synonymous with his inability or his indifference, we have to be reminded that God's delayed judgment is actually meant to reveal his present agenda, what he's trying to do here in this world. Verse 18, read with me here. It says this. I said in my heart, or the end of verse 17. Yeah, you said, God will judge. Why? For there is a time for every matter and for every work. God has set a time for this judgment, and that time's not now. But it's not because he's not in control. It's because he's weaving together this bigger story. And he goes on and says this. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what uh, happens to the children of man and what uh, happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, 
and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into earth. Here's what he does. He says, look, the reason why God's perfect justice is delayed. It's not for you and I to tell God what he should do. But God is actually using that to expose something about us. That word testing, don't think of it in terms of like a standardized test, right? God passes out these scantrons and we take this test and he's trying to learn something about us. Think of the, the test in terms of a sobriety test where God is trying to say, nah, I want you to see something about you. And so what we see, the thing that he brings up here, God's delayed justice is really meant to show all of us as men who have a tendency to overestimate ourselves the true nature of our humanity apart from him. Ecclesiastes 8 says this, because of the sentence against an evil deed isn't, um, I had the wrong word here, executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. What he says is this, if somebody does a crime and gets away with it, and it seems like justice is not going to come from them, do you know what it brings out of the rest of the folks' hearts? The desire to do the same thing. Not just from those that would do wrong, but if somebody is continually attacked and oppressed and all this wrong stuff's being done to them and justice doesn't come from them and they don't believe that God really is going to set things right one day, do you know what they'll do? Take matters into their own hands. They'll seek vengeance. And God's saying he's actually delaying his justice so that humanity as a whole comes to grips with the fact that there is something not right in all of us. He does this to show something about us that at the end of the day, though God has breathed his image into all of us and created us with dignity and purpose left unchecked. Do you know what mankind will do? But it's always done. Devour one another. The people that have strength, they're going to keep their thumb down on the folks that don't have strength. And the folks that don't have strength are going to rise up. And when they do get strength, they're going to do the exact same thing. That mankind, regardless of the high hopes that we have for mankind, God's delayed justice exposes not just that we're foul, but that we're fragile. Verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast, so all is vanity. All go to one place and all are from the dust and to the dust return. What he's not saying is that man and beast are the same thing. He's saying that what takes place in this life If you just look at their life here, that all of it is the same, that they'll live, 
but you cut off their oxygen supply and they'll die. And when they die, when he's saying that they all go to the same place, is that they're all going to go into the ground, man and beast, you and your dog will all decompose in the same place. That all of our lives are spiraling down. And you may say, John, we've talked about death so much. Why do you continue to bring it up? I know that I'm going to die. I know, I know, I know. Would you stop talking about death? And to that, I would respond with a gracious and polite, no. I won't because the Bible doesn't stop to talk about it. And it continues to come up in this book. Do you know why? Because as much as we say that we know that we are, we don't live our lives like it. We spend our lives concerned and consumed with things, with the future and what's going to take place, that we don't really grasp the fact that the only guaranteed moment, not just day, the only guaranteed moment is the one that you have right now. That's it. So if I were opposed to you right now, if you knew that this was your last day on earth, how would you spend it? Things would change. There may be plans that you had to do that you would change. Why? Because you're thinking of your life through the lens of, if I only know that today is the day that I have, then I'm going to use it. The reality for all of us is that regardless of if that question is posed to you or not, I want you to know the way that the Bible talks about your life is that the only guaranteed moment that you and I have is right now. Do you live your life as if you have an expiration date? That is going to come at a point that you don't know. Or do you tend to live your life constantly making plans for the future and cementing them in stone? As if you have control not just about the details of your life, but the duration of it. And what he's saying is that God has actually delayed his justice in this world so that you and I can see that at the end of the day, we are helpless. There is nothing more emasculating and violating than to feel as if you're on the wrong side of a broken justice system. Because what you quickly find out is that there is absolutely nothing that you can do. That at the end of the day, the people that we would look to to protect us. And so what I'm not saying is that everybody that's in charge of protecting us is bad. What I am saying is that if we put our hope in being protected completely by the system that we live in, what we're going to find out is that it will fail us. It was never meant to carry the brunt of our hope 
And God has actually delayed justice here on earth, at least for what said or uh, uh, what we see here to show us that. That we're absolutely helpless. Verse 21, as he reflects just on life here on this earth, he says this. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. This is that point where as we look at God's word, we're reminded that the Old Testament wasn't complete in and of itself. The Old Testament is only rightly understood as we lay it out on a trajectory of what God plans on doing in the new. We aren't left clueless as to what takes place when we die. Hebrews 9 tells us this. That for all of us, it's appointed for all men to die once. And then what takes place is judgment. So here's what I want us to see and and what I want us to grasp. For all of those, for all of us in here who have these hearts that are longing and crying out for God to do right, for God to be just, for God to intervene in what takes place here in this world. Do you know what your cry for justice does? It actually serves as the very thing by which you'll be condemned when you stand in front of God. A cry for justice here is saying there are people that have been done wrong that should or there are people that have been done wrong that should be stood up for. There are people that have done wrong that should be punished. That's just the way that things are. That's how things should go. And one day when you and I stand in front of God, what will take place is that every idle word, every sinful thought, every act of vengeance will be judged for all of those things. Not based on anybody else's standard. Even if he took the standard with which we ourselves cried out for, we would be condemned by the very standard that we cried for. And if God was instantaneous with his justice, none of us in here would see the age that we've seen right now. But praise be to a great God whose perfect justice is delayed. Hear what Peter says is the reason. One of the reasons for God's delayed justice. Second Peter 3 9 says this. God is not slow to keep his promise. This man understands slowness. But God is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. We've all done things for which we should be punished by God. And what Peter says here is that God's great patience in delaying and holding back that justice was met so that you and I would repent. And do you know the way that he's provided the means for us to have access to him? By sending his son Jesus to come to earth and to endure the worst injustice 
put on anybody by a corrupt government system. Jesus lived his life here on this earth, and he wasn't just blameless in the way that you and I can achieve a blamelessness by not breaking any laws. Jesus was blameless and perfect in that he never broke any of God's laws. But then what takes place through God allowing this broken and distorted justice system to remain in the world, God ended up using that for our good. Jesus was convicted by a broken justice system. Jesus was murdered and uh, uh, put on the cross by a broken justice system. But it was through those means that he was put in the ground and he didn't stay there, that he raised from the dead. So that you and I could be people that don't lament the fact that we don't get what we deserve, but that you and I can be people who rejoice in the fact that we won't get what we deserve because of Jesus. And God has stayed his hand of justice from us to provide us times, even through means that are deplorable in this world to bring us to a place where we feel the foulness of ourselves. We see the fragility of the lives that we have and we're desperate enough to turn from our sins and our attempts to find security apart from him. And we repent. And not just change our minds in the way that we think about sins, but that this repentance would actually affect our very lives. So now our lives are spent doing all that we can in this world to help other people come to that same reality. Look here at verse 22. So, the resolution that he makes at the end of all of this, that earthly justice is distorted, God's perfect justice will come one day and it'll be complete. What he says is, so, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. Prior to this, he talks about, yo, there's nothing better than we should eat and drink and enjoy life here. He doesn't talk about any pleasures, but he zeroes in on work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Or his eyes are blind to what God's going to do in the world down the line. But right now there's a joy that can take place in the work that God has left him for. And so here's what, what I want us to see. God's control, God's complete control is meant to keep us from discouraged hearts, not from dirty hands. God's control is not meant to keep us from getting our hands dirty. God's control is not meant for us to say, well, God's going to take care of things one day, so now I can just sit back and enjoy life. No, 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 no. God's control is meant to fuel our work here in this world and that you and I would be able to enjoy our work and not be discouraged and full of anxiety because we know that God is somehow going to use this to achieve his purposes in the world so you and I can be free to work and get our hands dirty and not have the discouragement that comes with it. 
So this looks like a group of Christians that are actively involved in trying to see a community restored. Look down here in uh, uh, 4 verse 1, and, and we're going to talk about this next week. But just look, look, look at this. Once again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. So it talks about people being oppressed and more than just lifting them up out of their oppression. He's saying the sad reality is is in the midst of that. There's nobody just to come alongside and to be with them. This is one of the great privileges that we have that, that we can do. Those of us that know that God is going to take care of things one day. We can spend our time trying to work towards change and not be discouraged if we don't see change in our lifetime. Because that's not where our joy comes from. Our joy comes in the fact that God's going to bring bring change and we can be fulfilled and have uh, joy in our work. And so what that looks like is a community of people, folks here in this room. Friday here at the church, the room was full of 25 people who came in and they had a heart to, I want to be close enough to somebody that finds themselves crying tears of oppression to, I may not be able to change their lives, but I want to be close enough to comfort them in the midst of those tears. And so what they're trying to do is trying to get to a place where they're not overly concerned with property value, but they're concerned with the problems of their neighbors who find themselves in a place like this. The joy that we have in our work as as policemen here in this world is that in the midst of a justice system that is broken. Being a Christian and somebody that is committed to not letting greed drive the day, you shine as a bright star. So guys like Nick Sasfi and Erica Buckman and Bruce White, who find themselves in law enforcement here, one of the great privileges of Christianity and being and seeing folks whose lives have changed is that they give their lives to this work and they find themselves in very dark places and and there's a contrast. That there's very real change that could take place from Christians just being in a place that's dark and presenting a picture and an alternative. God's control keeps us from discouraged hearts because we're not concerned about how God is going to take care of things in the future. We know that he will. The future lies beyond our grasp. And this comfort that we get in the word from God's great gift to us and promises towards us, it doesn't lead us to passivism. It leads us to be proactive. It leads those of us with privilege However you define it, 
to leverage that privilege to exposing issues of injustice and caring for those who find themselves presently involved with no way out crying tears. It encourages all of us, regardless of where we are, to take an assessment of what it is that we have and to know that as we give our lives to God, what that means is that we consult him on how he would have us use our lives to accomplish his purposes in the world. And if that takes place, we'll be surprised at the things 20 years from now that we can look back and see that God did with a room full of people who were kept and guarded from discouraged hearts because they were reminded of the amazing good that God accomplished even in a broken justice system, brutally murdering his own son. We're reminded that there's no obstacle that can stop God from doing what he wants to do here in this world. And so we rejoice because as we work, we partner with him and we don't take the burden on ourselves. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, you are a God that's perfectly just. And we don't deserve to be able to call you Father, but thank you for the fact that you didn't give us what we deserved, Father. Thank you for allowing injustice to fall on the shoulders of your son so that our lives would be freed from the anxiety of the uncertainty of the future and how things are going to play out, Father. Help us to surround ourselves with people um, who constantly make their lives about these things. Help us not to get caught up in just enjoying the pleasures of the world that we live in, but remind us that one day, Father, you will come back and you'll judge the world in complete righteousness. And for those of us that have put our trust in you, we can um, sit back, Father, and know that we'll be on the right side of things, not because of our works, not because of the things that we've done here in this world to uh, create justice, but because of the great injustice that was done towards your son. Help us to trust you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.